0: speak tonight for the dignity of man and the destiny of democracy may the turbulence of our age yield to the true time of peace when men and nations shall share a life that honors the dignity of each the brotherhood of all I see a world of open borders open trade and most importantly
1: Open mind. Open mind. Hello and welcome to To The Republic, a show dedicated to history, civics, and U.S. institutions. I'm your host, Jake, and in this episode we'll be tackling the road to revolution. The, specifically, how the uh, Continental Congress, the first and second Continental Congresses, um kind of helped pave the road to the Republic, the early Republic and helped uh, shape and guide uh, the United States through the uh, through uh, the Declaration of Independence, um, national forming a national identity a national government and setting the blueprint for eventually the um, the the lessons and uh, and everything that went along with eventually leading us to, the drafting of the u.s constitution the ratifying of the constitution and the republic that we know today so uh with that um i think we will be looking at we need to start with understanding the context of the time the history of uh well what the british mindset because uh contrary to popular popular belief contrary to popular popular belief the uh the members of the Continental Congress, the delegates from the states, um, and honestly, most general, you know, average day citizens in the colonies at this time were in favor, uh, at least in the early 1770s, even through uh, like Lexington, Concord and Bunker Hill. There was still a the majority of even delegates to the Continental Congress. Wanted to find some sort of solution with Great Britain to remain a part of the empire, but to uh, have more independence, a little bit more autonomy, and um, really just kind of address certain grievances. Uh, this belief that um, they were upset that the the empire, the King, uh, England proper, did not see the colonists, um, even though they were they were descendants of British settlers, as being British And therefore, were are not given the same, um, the same, essentially the same actual rights as uh, English as actual people in England, actual people who were seen as native born Englishmen. And so we'll definitely, we um, will show that throughout this, uh, through this episode, how the main actors in this story and the colonists in general, the national mood, I guess the really the birth of a national identity uh, happen through uh, these subsequent processes and, and events. Uh, before we really dive into the topic, though, uh, house some housekeeping uh, that we need to get into. Uh, just uh, I want to highlight the fact that KXRW is having a fundraiser. Uh, our fund drive is beginning this month, and we really could use we could really use any help that you, as a listener, are able to to give and any help at all helps us stay on the air. it helps us promote our shows, it helps us grow. And if you like what KXRW is doing, uh, it's doubly important because it gives it gives this community a voice and you know there really isn't much of a voice for Greater Vancouver. I can't tell you growing up when you leave this area or even if you go like even north into Seattle, uh, people you say Vancouver, and they assume you're Vancouver, uh, BC, uh, Vancouver, uh, and then or it's sometimes it's just if you're native Vancouver, right? You, you sometimes it's just easier to say I'm from Portland, but who really wants to say they're from Portland, right? We're Vancouver, we're, we're Washingtonians, we're not Oregonians. And so having a voice in Vancouver, uh, I think it helps it it just helps grow a sense of community it helps grow uh it just it just gives us so much and how and kxrw uh helps facilitate that in so many ways that we have such a wide eclectic um array of shows that uh explore just so many great topics um ever present past it's a great new show that we have um if you really like um, more community focused, more community focused politics, uh, the. Uh, filibusters, which on Oberg has always has amazing interviews with local politicians, uh, even at the state level. Um, really important, uh, really important because I think it, it helps uh, facilitate the local debate on politics. We get so much focused on what's going on at the national level or even at the state level that we forget that for the most part, the, our daily lives are way more, are, are way more influenced and affected by the local politicians that, uh, just appear on our ballots every four years. We don't know much about them. Well, you know, KXRW has, because we have a voice here in our community, we have, we're on air, we, we, and we have people who are interviewing these elected officials and, uh, and we, so we get to know them and they become more than just a name on the ballot and the, and it's a way to hold those people accountable as well so i, I it's uh, KXRW gives us gives our community such a great uh, a great resource and um, anything that you can do to help us as the listeners really goes a long way and so i uh, from to the republic and KXRW thank you guys all so much for listening so let's uh, dive into our topic to say that the American Revolution started over tea is a gross oversimplification. But it's kind of fun to think about. That uh we are a country because we were mad about taxes on our tea. And because I don't even think tea is is that much of an American thing. I don't I, when you think of tea you always think of Great Britain I mean I guess we we do drink tea here but I feel like we're much more of a coffee culture <laughs> anyway the it, but it's fun to, it's it's fun to think about and, and and think about how all of this was set in motion by the tea tax of 1773 which yeah, I mean, that was like the catalyst for the Boston Tea Party, which then set forth a bunch of tit for tat events uh, by both uh, Great Britain and King George uh, colonists acting kind of independently among little group groups of uh, independent colonists acting um and then that getting associated with the greater movement of uh, national identity and growing resentment towards the crown by uh, both, uh, just the, the the colonists in general, kind of like the uh, the aggregate mood towards the crown and this growing sense of American uh, identity and and dreams of independence, uh, and how that fit in with uh, the 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 more radical del- delegates within the Continental Congress that would eventually form in re- in uh, relation to. Uh, the the passing of the Intolerable intolerable Acts, which was in 1774. So we'll we'll get into a little bit more of this uh, kind of chronological series of events as we get a little bit later into the show. But I think to really understand how we got here as a a country and um, kind of the road to revolutions, I think you have to kind of understand the British mindset, the politics at play, and then also um, the relationship between colonists in an empire and the me- the the government of the metropole, which in this case is England. Metropole being kind of the the the, the host country in the, in this imperial superstructure. So if you think about this time, you have competing empires. Empire was kind of in vogue. We don't really think about that now because after World War II, empire uh, became much more. Um, uh, imperial based more than colonial based so there was more indirect control of uh, countries abroad more so than direct control like this is british territory owned and controlled directly by the host country whether it be england france uh, the dutch uh conglomerate um, holland and uh or whatever else germany later on russia and so forth America for a little while in the 1890s um the as far as so I think we kind of need to understand what how that kind of worked and the 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 economics of empire so really to kind of get into to get into that I think we need to we um need to talk about what is mercantilism and how that directly relates to how England saw its colonists and how that then bred resentment amongst the colonists. Mercantilist economics is quasi-capitalistic in its nature, but instead of being open competition, states wealth is, is centralized in the state and it derives from a very zero-sum philosophy in terms of economics. Uh, if you're interested more in, I've, I've covered economic uh, economic topics throughout, uh, at different episodes throughout this show's history, you can find that in the backlog at uh FM, sorry, kxrw.fm And if you if you want to go back there and listen, um, I think it'll give you a little bit more context for what I'm about to talk about, but I'll briefly describe what mercantilism is. So mercantilism so the difference between, like, mercantilism and capitalism, as we would think of capitalism today, is that mercantilism views trade as, like, a no-go. There's no, there's very little trade, and the only trade that happens between competing nations is if the, if if the state believes that it is 100% taking advantage of its trading partner. Well, because trade is cooperative by nature, there really is there's very little trade that happens because why would a, a why would a independent partner choose to enter into a negotiation where they are, have zero benefit to come out of it? So the idea of zero sum is that if my, if I'm only winning is if you're losing. Think for example England and France. England would only trade with France or engage in anything engage in any talks with France as if they were dictating all of the terms not very conducive to long-term cooperation, which is why there was so much tension between both states. They were operating under a economic system that was very much like their political system because they believe that um, the only way that I can survive is if you're losing. This idea of kind of capitalism today, in, in a rough sense, is that even if all, bo- all boats are rising, that's not a problem. I want to be rising faster than my competitor But if my my competitor's boat is also rising with the tide, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Relative gains is not a huge issue. In mercantilism, any gain made by my competitor is a direct threat to my own gains and then therefore my own survival. So there's very much a survivalist um, aspect of empire, of mercantilism, and how that uh, influenced the imperial superstructure of the time. So if we take that mercantilist economics, well, the only way then to, for a country like England, which is not particularly resource-rich, to be able to uh, exp- keep expanding and uh, make its wealth higher is to create captured markets. You create captured markets by colonies. You go and conquer places with those resources. You take those resources from that place and you bring them back to the metropole where you have where you can use your industrial power to make products but if you're not trading those and selling those products abroad because you don't want wealth to leave your country because losing wealth in a mercantilist sense is losing wealth so you want to centralize that wealth in your or in your country or in your empire you need a captured market to then sell those goods back to that's that was essentially the United States colonies within the imperial superstructure. There wasn't a ton to export necessarily in the United States. There wasn't a ton of raw resources at that time, so the American colonies became basically a dumping ground for British manufactured goods. That they got the resources from their African and South uh, South Asian uh, their South Asian colonies or their uh, Caribbean colonies like sugar. So that's where you see this reliance on using the United States, the colonies, as essentially a captured buyer's market for Britain's goods, way to keep basically everything in-house. Your your uh, raw resource um, acquisition, your manufacturing, and then the selling of those products, you're keeping everything internalized. Well, the problem is, is that that all works out great until um, you run into issues of uh, competing interests. To maintain empires when you have other empires is very expensive. Fighting wars to make to uh, on a uh, the sun never sets on the British Empire was a real thing. That's a lot of land for a small country like England to maintain. So you end up having to fight a lot of wars Um the uh, the Seven Years' War, which we hear, uh, which in the American context was the uh, French and Indian War, was part of the more global war. Really, kind of the First World War, if you think about it, It was uh, the the Seven Years' War fought in the 1750s. Really, kind of set the tone of um, Britain seeing the colonies as kind of a liability, and the amount of money that they had to dump into that the, the crown had to dump into. Uh, the colonies to protect them during the French and Indian Wars, and then sub- and then continued uh, threats from Native American uh, tribe tribal attacks on the frontier really limited uh, the um, the colonists' ability to expand economically to move westward. Um, there was the Proclamation of 1763, which forbid settling uh, east of the Appalachians. So there was a lot of things at play, and. The, with, with that, a growing sense of national identity within the colonists, especially within the 13 uh, American colonies. The, and then you have to also think about this. The colonists at the time, especially the young men who became the bulwark of the, uh, the colonial fighting force, most of them had never been to England their fathers may have been uh, English settlers, or maybe their grandfathers have been English settlers, but to them, England and the Crown was nothing more than kind of a uh, a stepfather telling them what to do, and they just want to listen to Blink-182 and do their own thing. And so there was a lot of resentment there, especially among the, the youth of of um, uh, of the colonists, um, really resenting this, uh, what they saw as an overreach from an overlord that they didn't really even... Um, identify as they didn't identify themselves really as English they they identified more themselves with the states or the colonies that they grew up in that was more or less the uh, their allegiance is more to the state well and as England started to clamp down a lot of that had to do with George George III's inability for foresight and just kind of his own reactionary um, his own reactionary uh, nature that really kind of kept poking the bear, so to speak, of the, of the colonists and eventually led to um, more nationalistic uh, identity within the colonists that then led to stuff like the Boston Tea Party, uh, Bunker, uh, Lexington Concord, Bunker Hill. And then by that time, the, 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 the stone had been rolling downhill so fast, there really wasn't any stopping it. So um, we're gonna need to. At this point, I've been kind of rambling off a little bit. So I think we're gonna take a quick break. Hear from our sponsors. When we get back, we'll get into uh, the actual uh, Continental Congress and um, talking about the Intolerable Acts um, and how the the Congress uh, thought sought to amend uh, to mend its relationship with Britain. The competing inter- The competing. Uh, th- theories and the competing um, personalities of the convention and how the Congress and how that um, ultimately led to revolution. So when we come back on the other side of the break, that's what we'll be talking about. But for now, let's hear from our sponsors.
0: Programming like this is made possible by the generous support of David Dansky with David's Toys, buyer and collector of old toy trains, including Lionel, Flyer, Ives, and Marks. He is interested in buying old transportation-related toys as well as toy trains, from the late 1800s to the 1960s. David offers appraisals for fellow toy train lovers as well. David's toys can be reached at 360-576-1602. That's
2: 360-576-1602. KXRW programming like this is made possible with the support of The Columbian. Proud to be Southwest Washington's leading news source. The Columbian is family owned and operated by the Campbell family, guiding the award winning news coverage and operations since nineteen twenty. Subscription options and the most thorough daily coverage of the local region, local sports, and national news, both in print and online, available at Columbian.com. Consider subscribing today. That's Columbian.com. Are you looking for junk removal from a full-service, local, friendly company that recycles or donates whenever possible? On-Point Removal Services trucks are 25% bigger than the average junk removal truck and are fully licensed and insured. Call or text 360-728-0093 for a free instant quote. That's 360 728 zero zero nine three or go to onpoint hyphen removalcom for more information on point removal services removing junk on point
1: welcome back to to the Republic a show dedicated to history civics and US institutions in this episode we've been talking about the <clears throat> kind of the road to revolution is what I'm kind of broadly calling this episode but really it's about the the history and the context of the time preceding the American Revolution and how the Continental uh, Congress formed and how the Continental Congress ultimately helped shape the early Republic and the Revolution itself. But kind of back to the tea issue that I uh, briefly mentioned back in, uh, in the first segment, the, uh, the, the Tea Tax of 1773 was a way for the British government to help recoup some of its expenses that come along with empire. Uh, war expenses especially, um, the crown was in massive debt following the Seven Years' War um, and had been levying certain amount of taxes on its colonies. Its primary taxation colony, the 13 American colonies, um, now known as the United States of America. The, um, the tea tax was not particularly received well, especially in uh, the northeastern colonies, which were more mercantile, drying most of their economy from from trade and importation. These taxes uh, were one of the main reasons, were hit the Massachusetts colonies and the surrounding colonies the hardest, which is why you saw the biggest um the most resentment towards the crown started to originate in that area. The mid-Atlantic colonies were a little bit more um, hesitant to kind of uh, poke the crown and wanted to be more loyalist. And then the further south you go, the more conservative it starts to get and wanting to be uh, really seeing revolution. Even uh, the first Georgia was... was a holdout of the First Continental Congress because they did not see, they, they relied on British troops to help defend their settlements uh, from uh, Native American attacks because they were much more on the frontier, much more on the periphery. So uh, so it, it was, were even at this time, two years before the official start uh, the official declaration of independence was passed in, uh, in 1776, you have uh, still very much a very broad spectrum of uh, how the colonists felt about the crown, how the colonists felt about revolution. Uh, and to many of them, the majority was, it was unthinkable at this point. But uh, that the in response to the uh, the Tea Act, you have the Boston Tea Party in 1774, where a bunch of a bunch of colonists, younger colonists, dressed up as Native Americans, dumped a bunch of tea into the into the Boston Harbor. And in response to that, uh, the Crown saw this as an open act of rebellion. In addition to some other things that had been happening throughout the colonies, they saw Massachusetts as kind of this hotbed that was instigating uh, this revolutionary fervor and, and intolerable fervor throughout the, uh, this in, these intolerable acts. So they passed their own intolerable acts is what it was framed in the uh, Massachusetts media Britain actually called themselves the Coercive Acts to coerce the colonies back into compliance. And they thought by making an example out of Massachusetts that it would uh, bring the rest of the colonies to heel. The, uh, they saw the colonies in rebellion. They, pers- they framed it in the perspective of four total acts. So you have the, the Boston port, which uh, became under control of, of the British uh, provisional government, where it had been more independent at that point. Uh, Massachusetts governor was then directly appointed by the crown much more loyal to the crown uh, brought bringing in uh, more British troops a higher British troop presence um, imperial administration of justice so um, at that point there was no really independent courts the courts were then um, brought by the the colonial governor which answered directly to the to British Parliament, and then the Quartering Act, which forced colonists to house British troops. It's a way of, it was a way of the um, Britain seeing that it was necessary to have their troops station both for internal security and external security in case of war breaking out with either native american tribes the french getting pesky again uh pay and kind of shoving that expense onto the colonists by forcing the colonists to house their troops that was these four acts and uh, were seen as the intolerable acts by massachusetts um from there Um, they really just took away. In essence, they took away the self-governing aspect of the Massachusetts Colony, Uh, and by extent, some of the other colonies saw this as well. This is that can just how that can happen to us. So you start seeing more and more resentment towards the Crown. I really want to hammer home before we go any further. I really want to hammer home the fact that the the thirteen American colonies did not see themselves as unified really in any way even up to 1773 and 1774 uh, at most the colonies uh, would uh, correspond with each other some had uh, more formal agreements with uh, with trade and certain things but for the most part these were self-contained, Colonies with their own identity, their own governance, their own essentially relationship with each other, and then their own relationship with the crown. There was no at that point. There was only just the rumblings of a national American identity, of a United States of American identity. Like today, we we you know, were American, right? If you're you're born in our in our uh, borders, you're seen as American. Well, that didn't really exist. You were New York. You were a New Yorker. You were a Virginian. Um, there wasn't. A, Media played a huge role in this, um, and, and uh, especially with the the advent of the printing, printing press and uh, the the key actors like Benjamin Franklin, John Jay, uh, Alexander Hamilton, uh, having uh, writing about uh, especially in the more radicals like the uh, the the Adams, Samuel Adams and John Adams, writing about um, this American identity and the need for independence, and so that kind of bled into the the daily discourse. Which then started to form identity, and then they started the crown started acting how the how the, uh, the f- kind of the framers of this American identity were saying that they would act, and it was just kind of all self reinforcing, and eventually that, that led to uh, more of a national identity. But at this point in 1773, 1774, there really was no consensus. There was pr- not a lot of cooperation between the colonies. So, um, in re- but it really was at the advent of the Intolerable Acts. And just kind of these subsequent decades of resentment building between the economic interests of the colonies and the economic inter- and the diverging interests from the crown that really started to force the colonies to want to work together. Um, outside, so so what started as just kind of light correspondence ultimately forced the uh, twelve of the thirteen colonies minus Georgia to meet to try to redress their grievances with the crown. What they saw as increasingly antagonistic behavior from the crown to the colonies. Uh, They met for six weeks, uh, beginning September 5th of 1774, and uh, kind of breaking in late October, October 26th to be exact, in 1774. Um, Like I said, 12 of the 13 colonies were present. Uh, loyalists at this point, as I would kind of mentioned, had outweighed the patriotic sentiment, patriotic kind of in this term, because it's been hijacked, unfortunately, in our modern day, but patriot kind of meant uh, radical uh, at this at this point in this particular context in 1770. Uh, to mean, you know, somebody who wanted to rebel against the crown and form a, uh, an independent nation. However, that would manifest that this idea of a unified United States, as we see it today, wasn't something that was even conceptualized at this time. It wasn't even a really that much of an idea, uh, just revolution. Um, and we'll figure it out later. was kind of the, the Adams, uh, view of this in Adam, the Samuel Adams was really kind of the, the for, at the forefront of this this patriotic fervor hailing from Massachusetts, that pesky colony. The main like actual tangible thing that the Continental Congress, the first Continental Congress passed was an economic boycott of Great Britain. And they petitioned George III for a redress of grievances. Uh, At this point, most delegates did not want to break from Great Britain. As I had mentioned, Uh, specifically New York and Pennsylvania delegates were sent with firm instructions from their, um, in their colonial uh, legislature, to reach a deal with Great Britain. Um, Rest of the states split on compromising or declaring independence. So, like, as I was kind of saying, the the northern colonies wanting to more, uh, wanting to to, uh, declare independence, the mid-Atlantic colonies kind of wanting to find a middle ground, and then the southern colonies generally wanting to stay firmly with Great Britain. This would obviously change as things began to get worse uh, in 1775, April 1775, you have Lexington and Concord, the first major real skirmishes between um, between uh, colonists, armed colonists and uh, British troops. Uh, this really, this kind of culminated in Bunker Hill, which took place uh, in July of July 5th of 1775 and, um, June, Sorry, June 17th, 17, uh, 1775. At that point, uh, the Continental Congress had issued an all, what was called the Olive Branch Petition, which was a, a way to try to find um, some sort of uh, avoidance of war with Great Britain by... Great Britain giving back the colonies some of its independence, expanding its independence in some certain areas, especially with economics. Uh, Unfortunately, because of travel time, uh, the King George received the olive branch petition the same exact day that he uh, received word of the Battle of Bunker Hill, which uh, even though the British won, suffered massive losses. He saw that as a complete slight, and uh, even though Great Britain, Great Britain's Parliament did debate the, the merits of the Olive Branch, King George addressed Parliament, giving a scathing speech condemning Massachusetts specifically, but really the colonies in general, wanting them to bring them back to heel, because in his mind, colonists were below um, Great Britain. And uh, the actual British citizens, they were subjects of the empire, and therefore their rightful place was to be below them. And, well, that didn't fly particularly well with colonists who were already in armed rebellion in spots. And now you just have more colonies, more independent fervor. Like I said, a lot of this is about as much about the actors as it is the... Um, as it is the like the more macro level events that were happening because a lot of these events don't end up happening without the actors themselves carrying them out King George III's personality had a lot to do with this um, had a lot to do with the revolution kind of breaking out the way that it did if you had a more patient king a king who was less uh um less angry, uh, less reactionary, you may have, we may have avoided war and America would have gained independence more of a natural way like Canada did. Uh, but such, uh such as history, that didn't end up happening. Uh, the second continental Congress convened, um, had convened at or at already in April of 1775 prior to the Battle of Bunker Hill um, that was when they did pass that all uh, the Olive branch petition some of the the other major things that it, it that it happened to um, the other the other major things at the Second Continental Congress which met in the wake of uh, which met, met in the wake of of um, of kind of uh, of Britain ignoring um, the the redress of grievances was that they began to the Second Continental Congress, which now included Georgia, um, began its its path towards actually forming a continental government, a unified government of all colonies working together under a uh, under a um, centralized, more centralized government. So there was an, a president of the Congress at this uh, in the Second Convention. There were um, actual institutions set up a war, um, like a war department, how figuring out how to fund an army. They one of the few delegates uh, at the Second Convention, George Washington, was one of the very few. Sorry, there was quite there was 56 delegates. One of the few of those delegates that had military experience was George Washington, having served in the British Crown during the Seven Years War. He uh, agreed to uh, command the the colonial troops, and about sixteen thousand initial um, initial colonial troops began um, formally uh, began formally uh, training under George Washington's command. Uh, and initially, this this was this army was not um, set up to go to war. It was more of a well, we're forming in, in the uh, in the Congress's mind. It wasn't a, an actual declaration of independence. It was or gearing up to go to war for it and indif- to ultimately gain independence. It was this idea of we, in order for us to be taken seriously, we need to have an actual presence. And we need to have some weight behind our centralized government, our centralized message. And that is kind of and then the muscle behind that was an organization of a formal army that transcends the borders of these independent states i think that's the the main key to take away from the second continental congress is that it really broke down the in, the opaque barriers between the states and started that dialogue of a more uh, national unity or a more unity between the states there was even uh, it was still very much uh, independent, like uh, very much state identity within the uh, within the delegates and then even the the citizens themselves. But there was starting you start to see the seeds grow of a more colonial, more, I guess, trans colonial identity, more so than just a singular colonial identity, so, which I think is really important. When you start to talk about uh, the formation of the Declaration of Independence, we start the, the passing of the Declaration of Independence and then um the Revolution, the Articles of Confederation, and then how that ultimately led to the the uh, scrapping of the Articles of Confederation, which put states' rights above the federal government, a weak federal government, because there was still this idea of states' rights, and then eventually the um, the flipping of that under the U.S. Constitution and the continent, and um, which. Uh, put the a stronger centralized government. So all of this starts to really begin with that second Continental Congress, which is I think the second Continental Congress is so important to how the early Republic ultimately formed because it really broke down. I just want to reiterate how it broke down that uh, those more rigid uh, identity structures of the of the colonies and started and really put in place the first uh, centralized form of government that the colonies had all right so with that i think we're going to take a break and hear from our sponsors when we get back to when we get back from that break i uh, will get in a little bit more of the nuts and bolts of what the second continental uh congress and how that um helped set up the articles of confederation and then the legacy of that carrying on to the u.s constitution so uh you've been listening to the republic thank you very much and we'll be right back
2: Attention, Vancouver. KXRW is Vancouver's only independent hyperlocal talk and music station, and we need your help. Our online spring fun drive is happening right now from May 1st to the 14th. Our volunteer-powered station relies on your donations for our operational costs that keep us sustainable and expand our programming so we can deliver more informational content to combat the world of dis- and misinformation that we live in today. Plus, we're proud to highlight the incredible local music and art scene we have right here in Vancouver. So, if you appreciate the values driven reporting that KXRW delivers, please consider becoming a monthly member or making a one time tax deductible donation today by going to kxrw.fm forward slash donate or by texting KXRW to 44321. That's 44321. Every contribution makes a difference. Thank you for supporting KXRW your community radio station.
1: A big thank you to our founding partners at Morel, Inc. Print and Marketing for their ongoing support of community radio. Morel, Inc. is a woman-owned, union-staffed, state-of-the-art print shop that since 1993 has offered high-quality, creative, and innovative printing and marketing solutions. Morel, Inc.'s experienced staff creates partnerships with their clients and uses the latest technologies to meet their needs. More information about which of Morel Inc.'s products, printing, and marketing strategies will best serve your next project and budget can be found at morellink.com. That's M-O-R-E-L-I-N-K.com. Welcome back to To the Republic. Um, in our last segment, we talked about the con- uh continental congress the first and second continental congress uh talking about the rise of a more of a national identity and how the congress helped facilitate that and really kind of uh, in a circular manner like how the continental congress was a reflection of growing uh anti great britain sentiment and the rise of a national identity and how the con and then how uh the congress helped break down the really rigid Barriers between the the colonies and formed a more uh, unified identity and a more uh, cooperative uh, relationship between those uh, between those colonies and how that was necessary for what would eventually come, which is the American Revolution. So. Um, When we had ended our last segment, um, we hadn't really talked about kind of the nuts and bolts of the Second uh, Continental Congress. The first one was really more of a uh, kind of a loose conglomerate of delegates sent from 12 of the 13 colonies uh, who formed uh, who wrote like a a redress of grievances to the uh, to uh, Parliament and King uh, British Parliament and King George III. Um, it didn't really, uh, other than uh, writing that redress of grievances and um, agreeing um, to boycott, have an economic boycott of Great Britain. It didn't really have much more. It wasn't really institutionalized in any way. It was just kind of like a general meeting of the minds, so to speak, between um, all the colonies minus Georgia. The Second Continental Congress had um, was a much more uh, f- formal, a much more formal uh, forum. It uh, consisted of all 13 uh, member delegates from all 13 colonies, and the mood was definitely much more shifting towards a, a national identity and wanting more independence. Not quite to uh, uh, complete independence, but wanting more autonomy from the, fe- from the federal government. Yes, there were factions within the Continental Congress, especially from the northern colonies that we had talked about earlier, uh, wanting. And end up wanting full blown independence and a war of revolution uh, that was tempered um, by the other two real two thirds of the of the delegation um, wanting either um, to kind of reframe the relationship with Great Britain but maintain a part of the empire or more of the conservative faction which at this point was starting to become less and less be- uh, wanting to kind of keep the status quo and not anger Great Britain. So um, the Second Continental Congress did several main things. What it did um, was that it kind of it initially set up a, basically a de facto national government. It uh, raised an army, like we talked about last, uh, last segment, um, which uh, was headed by George Washington. Uh, it directed kind of a strategy and how the colonies would, instead of each colony sending its own delegates to... British Parliament or writing directly to King George, uh, there would be a unified message and um, a, dr- in a uh, centralized strategy in all colonies uh, cooperating and um, writing as a whole, which, you know, carries a lot more weight than just, say, New York saying, we have a problem when you have all 13 colonies sending a signed letter. It's a lot more weight behind it. Um, and so in in that's a, that's a huge tone shift and a huge, I and mean, I really I can't understate the, the shift and how quickly we went from 1773, which was just Massachusetts being pissed off about tea tax uh, and the rest of the colonies just kind of little upset at Great Britain to now we've got a, a de facto government two years later, basically, um, acting as one unified whole, like, that's a, that's a, that's a massive, that's a massive uh, change in in tone and mood. Uh, Approving, they appointed diplomats, so actually having, like, you know, this is a, uh, this is our Continental Congress diplomat to other countries, not just Great Britain, but to France and other imperial superpowers of the time. Um, So really, you start to kind of see the makings of a, of an independent government and i think that really is the legacy that should be taken out of the second continental congress is that really was kind of the first real national government uh it uh making treaties um which would come in handy throughout the revolutionary war um with especially with france um And So that was kind of like the the extent of what it set up. So really informal, nothing super institutionalized like you would see in the Articles of Confederation. And then later in the um, once independence had been won, uh, the U.S. Constitution, but still very important nonetheless. And it helped really guide uh, the United States through this um, um, pre-war era and then the um, interwar era. This really opinion, I think this really does a good job of uh, tying into an earlier episode I did a few months ago, talking about the difficulties of cooperation and what it takes for cooperation to be sustained in the long term. So really what the Continental Congress was is a ad hoc arrangement between independent uh, colonies uh, to address a common goal and a singular uh, focus, which is the enemy of that was Great Britain, to um, in ad hoc relationships, often are a very good flashpoint for short-term cooperation. But a lot of times without that institutionalization, uh, you uh, without institutionalization and, and agreed-upon rules and an actual centralized government, you have um, cooperation uh, falls apart fairly quickly because of diverging interests. Uh, when you have a national identity and a nationalized centralized government, However, that ends up forming. It interests remain. Um more uh more common and therefore cooperation can um can be extended into the long term um, multiple rounds games we we're talking about uh and in that episode i talked a lot about uh the importance of uh how trade and um leadership and uh buy-in all help foster that well institutionalization all foster help foster cooperation and how institutionalization helps uh um Individualized individual parties see themselves within that institution and how that fosters long-term cooperation. Anyway, go back and listen to that episode uh, if you want. Uh, if you're interested in, in more of that theoretical concepts of cooperation, but I think the the concepts of that really help uh, kind of understand uh, the significance of the Second Continental Congress because it set the table for that initial cooperation. And uh, it helped bring the first amount of institutionalization into uh, into the American um, into the American idea, and I, I think I really don't think that can be understated because of how uh, where we ended up. I think without uh, the, f- the forming of the Second Continental Congress and the more institutionalization nature of it, I don't think we get uh, to the where we eventually end up as quickly as we did and so I, I just want to really really reiterate how important the second continental congress was this brings us to july of 1776 the famous the famous month of america's birth right sort of i mean if you really want to be nitpicky we declared independence July second um, under the resolution of independence, which was passed at the beginning of the uh, of the convention in July. Uh, of 1776 Uh, and then formally the Declaration of Independence famously written by uh, Thomas Jefferson was passed July 4th of 1776 of the convention now it's important to note that it took another two months for all of the colonies to ratify the Declaration of Independence so there really wasn't an actual declaration that was a that was fully recognized by all colonies for another two months after July 4th of 1776 but I mean, let's not be nitpicky, the words were written on paper July 4th, 1776, and as much as the historian in me wants to be like, well, tactically, that's not really the date we actually declared independence, it, it, I mean, it, let's have the date for hallmark reasons, but it is important because at least, you know, it it, uh, it signified a dramatic shift in the revolu- in the independence movement and the, the real, the buy-in of all parties within the colonies not all parties but all delegates of the the majority of all, of uh, delegates from all from all colonies um pushing now towards from trying to amend or trying to mend the the relationship with great britain to now we're breaking from great britain we see ourselves as rightfully independent and we're going to fight to get that reality and so once again it's just another it's another shift that uh then the continental congress is now now the de facto government of a fledging nation or a hopeful nation that can win its independence and so um with the with the passage of the declaration of independence um the war had the revolutionary war had already been essentially being fought for almost a year now but it hadn't really been formalized the declaration of independence and its ratification really put into stone at the revolutionary war we did, had actually begun at an in, like institutionalized the war effort which is important which then gave the continental congress more importance to build towards something that is um, more sustainable if and when we want our independence and we needed more centralization in order for that in, for that independence movement and the war effort to succeed Enter in the uh, Articles of Confederation, which was a, even when the Second Continental Congress gave way to the Articles of Confederation, which was a uh, a loose, a a more, well, I shouldn't say loose, loose comparatively to the, um, what came later, which was the Constitution, but a more a more structured more centralized form of government than existed under the second uh Con- continental congress the articles of confederation now takes it a step further which um setting up actual committees the secretary this uh, uh, secret correspondence between um basically there was an entire committee based on secret correspondence between uh the colonists uh the, col- the colonial government and uh foreign dignitaries uh that were hoping to receive aid from. Uh we had a tre- and act uh, it set up an actual treasury department, uh a warden ordinance department, so how to um create that the necessary supply chains, the the how to fund the war effort. Uh secretary of the navy which uh immensely important to the war effort and then an the actual uh constitution committee which wrote the specific articles of the other of confederation which was uh ratified on november 5th of 1777 <clears throat> so the articles of confederation it carried us through the the war period uh and all the way up to uh the end of the war which was in 1783 uh, and then was the essentially the law of the land until the uh, con- uh, constitutional convention in 1787, the Article of Confederation, um, because of a lot of the because of the context of the time, the a lot of the the, the colonies and now states were hesitant to have a really formalized central government, fearing um, the power of a king. Which is understandable, but unfortunately, after that, uh, when we talked about the impo- like how ad hoc can foster really strong short-term cooperation because of unified, unified singular goals and common enemies, when when that when that singular goal, which was to gain independence, and that common enemy is no longer a threat, uh, ad hoc relationships generally uh, devolve fairly quickly as interests diverge. Um, which is why institutionalization is so important to long term cooperation to kind of just re-harp on that, because I think you, you see that start to r- arise um, in the in the post-war period. The Articles of Confederation, which essentially set up 13 independent states with a very weak centralized government with no ability to tax, no really ability to tell states what they can and cannot do, um, led to. Civil war was ever present between the states over fighting uh, infighting over uh, economics, uh, currency, uh, banking issues, there was all sorts of tensions that there was really no forum or centralized government to kind of uh, to alleviate those those issues. So what uh, James Madison and other uh, Federalists like Hamilton and John Jay, who wrote the Federalist Papers, started to to, to notice and argue is that they they felt like the the republic was on shaky ground at best, if not in complete danger of collapse. Uh, began to push for a more central uh, reordering of the uh, a reordering of the. Uh, of, of the centralized government to a federalist structure where this the, the the federal government the central government would preside over the states the states still having autonomy and that all worked out at the con- at the constant uh, constitutional uh convention like i said in 1787 but what the article i don't want to trash completely the articles of confederation and then even the looser uh second uh, uh continental congress because they they paved the way to the le- one, the lessons that were learned that ultimately brought us to where we are today, with the Constitution as it is, as it is, and and but also the rigidity of uh the of the uh, the convention gave us a document that can be amended the the art, article 5 of the constitution allows for the constitution itself to be amended That's so we have so many amendments to the constitution so so much of this is a legacy and, and brought over time it's not just uh, the revolution was won and then boom, America. This was a process. This was trial and error and in compromise and cooperation. And it took a long time to build this national identity. I mean, Thomas Jefferson himself, before, uh, prior to the passing of the, con- of the Constitution, he called Virginia my country, not the United States' his country, Virginia his country. And that was not a, that's the, the writer of the Declaration of Independence. So, we were a long in 1773 <laughs> to 1787. It's, a, it's not that long of a time. when you think about uh, when you think about it, to go from seeing yourself as a British citizen to seeing yourself as a citizen of a state to then seeing yourself as a member of a nation. That's a fundamental. Uh, that's a fundamental. Cha- that's three fundamental changes that would take most people a lifetime to become accustomed to or be comfortable with. Uh, to have happen and that wouldn't have been possible that wouldn't have been um, that wouldn't have been um, even really considered as a possibility to get to where we were where we are today in such a rapid fashion without without uh, the, the formation of the second continental congress the articles of confederation and that long process to get to where we are i kind of wanted to end on um, on a quote by james madison which i find to be really important and he says and I think it's important because it highlights this idea of long-term cooperation. And Madison uh, said, a sincere and steadfast cooperation in promoting such a reconstruction of our political system as would provide for the permanent liberty and happiness of the United States. So Madison, this was before the, con- uh, the constitutional convention in 1787. And when he was writing the Federalist Papers and madison identified that you need as much as we feared the the rule of a king you need a centralized government and the american experiment so so much is tied to madison's idea of you can have a centralized representative government without having a king and which is so immensely unique for this i mean this was unheard of at this time and uh In in politics, there was no such thing as a representative democracy, as a republic. Uh, So, and Madison lived and helped, was a part of the the Second uh, uh, Continental Congress. He was part of the Articles Confederation. He was uh, an instrumental part and eventually became a president. So, I just wanted to kind of reiterate the importance of this process and how we got here because i think it's it's lost in this um story that we tell ourselves that we we fought a we fought a revolution and then pop we just had all of these great ideas and we formed this uh this uh, this government that we have and that just kind of materialized but really it, it, it it was trial and error it was different actors it was different individuals with different ideas coming together and cooperating and differing and uh and eventually settling on something that we still that uh, that has um, for the most for better or worse at times uh has uh held our country together um for 250 years so i think it's is something to uh to to celebrate and i think it is something uh that i think we need to pay more attention to is the the early workings of the the road to revolution because it holds so much weight in how we um and how we got here anyway uh so uh thank you so much for listening to to the republic Uh, like i said uh you guys uh, are the heart and soul of our uh of of our community and thank you so much for uh for continuing to be a presence here and grow with kxrw so with that uh you have been listening to the republic i'm jake we'll see you next month
2: KXRW, Vancouver's only independent, hyper-local talk and music station, needs your help. Our online Spring fund Drive is happening right now from May 1st to the 14th. Our volunteer-powered station relies on your donations for our operational costs that keep us sustainable and expand our programming. Please consider becoming a monthly member or making a one-time donation today or going to kxrw.fm forward slash donate or by texting KXRW to 44321. Thank you for supporting KXRW your community radio station.
0: The Sierra Club empowers local volunteers to lead campaigns to protect the places and people we love. They empowered local volunteers to lead the effort in Vancouver City Hall to develop an emissions reduction plan. The goal is to reduce emissions at least 50% by 2030. More information is available about how to become a member and support their work at sierraclub.org slash Washington. That's sierraclub.org forward slash Washington.
2: KXRW Radio would like to help spread the word about food availability. Head to ClarkCountyFoodBank.org and click on Find Food to access a map and printable list of pantry locations throughout the region where you can pick up or donate food. That's ClarkCountyFoodBank.org.